want to experience the power of God, plant the word in the good soil of your heart and let it grow. Okay, so today I, I want to speak on something and I'm going to be looking down like this a lot because, oh sorry, I'll be looking down like this because I'm actually going to be reading it. Um, so it, for anyone that wants a, a heading, it's called Stand and Be Counted. So I had some questions. What does it look like from a Christian perspective to stand and be counted? And why should we stand? Standing for something by default means you're standing against something else. I believe we are called to stand despite opposition, despite, this, despite being laughed at, and despite being ridiculed. You see, standing comes with consequences, both positive and negative. Standing for something comes at a cost. So if we go to Romans 5 verse 8, and I know Jethro's into Romans 5 at the moment, eh? Hey? Very much so. So this is for you, specifically. Okay. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we are called to stand, while we were still sinners, our great example chose to lay down his own life. He chose to stand for what he knew to be right. A person stands for what they believe in, and sometimes the consequences are dire, but the reason for standing seems to outweigh those consequences. In the book of Daniel, we read an account of King Nebuchadnezzar erecting a golden image in the plains of Jura, which was to be, to be bowed down to in worship. Let's read that in account in, in Daniel 3, verse 5 and 6. At the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And um, so, so I've just lost my place so quickly. Um, in verse 12, we see the Chaldeans come to King Nebuchadnezzar to complain. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods, nor worship the gold image which you have set up. So King Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gives them a second chance to bow down and worship the golden image, or they would be cast in the, into the fiery furnace. And in verse, in verse 17, they answer him. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. I think there's more to that, eh? But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So, King Nebuchadnezzar sum, summons Shadrach and Meshach, gives them a second chance. They answer him. Um, they choose to stand. They choose to stand for what they believe in. They choose to stand for something 
in the certain face of death. So why stand? Let's take a look at Moses. Moses grew up in, in the courts of Pharaoh. He grew up with many privileges of the day. One of those days, he chose to stand for something. We read this account in Exodus 2, verse 11 and 12. Now it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses chose to stand for something. He chose to stand for his people and against, and against the Egyptians. In Exodus 2, verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So Moses stood up for what he believed, but he ran for fear of his life when faced with the consequences. Let's take a look at another great in the Bible, Elijah. In the book of Kings, we read of King Ahab. In 1 Kings 16 verse 30, we read about Ahab. And he was a son of Omri. He did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So more than all the kings that were before him, he did more evil than them. He wasn't really a very godly man at all. This is where Elijah steps into the picture. God tells Elijah to tell King Ahab that because of his wickedness, God is going to cause a drought in the land. So 1 Kings 17 verse 1, um, I'll read the second half. As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. Feels weird turning around like this all the time. So we jump forward a few years and, uh, and we get to 1 Kings 18 verse 1. So it, it, between 17 verse 1 and 18 verse 1, there's three years. It's quite a long distance. This is the three years. It's a wilderness period. It's, it's a drought. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So in between these three years, Ahab was actually looking for Elijah. Elijah was in various places. At first he was at a river, and he was being fed by ravens. They were bringing him food. And it wasn't the ravens. He wasn't eating the ravens. The ravens were actually bringing him food. Let's go read that account. It's amazing. So um, Elijah goes to present himself to the king. We read this in 1 Kings 18, verse 17 to 19. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have not followed, oh, sorry, and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 
So you can see he's, he's talking to the king. He's bold. He's got a lot of courage. Doesn't seem fearful. All seems good. So if you, I want to stress, though, if you haven't heard this account in 1 Kings 18 of what I'm going to read now, I, I really suggest you go and sit down, cup of coffee, take your time. It's really, really an incredible account. It's a, I, don't li- I don't like saying story because it's not a story. It's a historical account. It's genuine. It really happened. And it's good to see it from that perspective. So Elijah gets 450 prophets of Baal to choose a bull and prepare it and lay it on the altar. But he says, don't set it alight. And he said he would do exactly the same. Then he instructs them to call on their gods and ask it, them to set uh, the sacrifice on fire. And they start calling. And a few minutes go by, half an hour, hour, two hours, three hours, nothing. So eventually Elijah says, well, maybe you need to call a bit louder. Maybe your gods are on holiday. Maybe they're hard of hearing. I don't know. Call louder. So they call louder. They start cutting themselves, uh, which was their custom. And nothing. Nothing happened. No fire. No spark. Nothing. Then came the turn of Elijah in 1 Kings 18, 30 to 39. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, that's quite a mouthful there, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seers of seed. Uh, just for interest sake, two seers is about 17 liters of water. He put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of evening sacrifice. So now it's already evening. So this is how long the prophets of Baal were going on for, not getting it right. That Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things according to your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you. I just want to stop at that little point where Elijah's praying and he says, you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. So Elijah has already seen what God is going to do. He's already seen in the future. He knows that their hearts are going to be turned. So this is now merely just a formality. He knows that God has managed to, to get it right. Sorry. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifices. This is very interesting, this bit. And the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. So I googled what size bomb. I don't know if, if I was, if I was um, being 
searched after that, but what size bomb would it take to consume dust? And the only thing I could come up with is the atomic bomb, Hiroshima bomb, actually in its explosion created dust. So there's nothing that seems powerful enough to consume dust at all. But this, in the word of God, it says that the fire fell and consumed the dust. That's how powerful it was. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Yeah, it's, it, for me, it's it, it just, um, I know I'm going back now, I'm side, sidetracking a little bit, but the idea that, that the power of God, if you think of the, the bomb in Hiroshima, it destroyed Hiroshima. This is Elijah saying, come close, and then the fire of God falls, it consumes the dust close by, but doesn't touch anybody. It's that powerful. It consumes the rocks. It doesn't melt them, it consumes them. That's, that's amazing that there's so much power and it's so well contained. I know that's not me. Okay. Okay, so in one action, God shows he is truly the only God. A little while after this, Elijah prays for rain and God answers. King Ahab arrives home in 1 Kings 19 verse 1 and 3 and tells his wife Jezebel about the past events. So in my mind, I'm imagining that um, 1 Kings 19 verse 1 and 3. I'm imagining that King Ahab is actually excited. Uh, that's the way I'm imagining because he's just seen the power of God. So he's telling Jezebel. And he says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more so also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when Abraham saw that, he arose and in faith stood up against Jezebel. No. Oh, he arose and ran for his life. So here's Elijah moving in the power of God. These events aren't very much further than the word from Jezebel. They were quite close together in time, I'd imagine. And Elijah runs for his life. He is experiencing the power of God. Jezebel sends word saying, your life is going to be taken at my hand. And he runs. He runs away. That's, that's amazing. So, Elijah was... Uh, uh, just what I said, Elijah was the four forefront of God's power, hearing his voice, seeing his power, and then one sentence, he runs for his life. A moment later, we find him sitting under a broom tree, wallowing in self-pity. He said to God that he had enough and wanted to go home to be with him, and he was no better than his father's. Then he proceeded to fall asleep. He was woken by an angel and told to eat. Elijah looked and saw a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So an angel baked him a cake and provided him a jar of water. And he's still walking in the miraculous, but he's in complete self-pity. You know, it's like, I can't get that. It's weird. So he ate it. 
and then he lay down and fell asleep because obviously he was very stressed out about dying. And then, <laughs> no one knows why. And then he, he got woken again by an angel and the angel said, sit up, eat again because the journey is long. So now we're jumping forward 40 days and 40 nights of journey. It's a long time. And this food sustained him for that. And he ends up at Horeb, the mountain of God. It's here that God asks him on two occasions what he's doing there in the cave. And on both counts, he answers exactly the same. It's almost like it's been printed and just reprinted exactly the same. The answer's identical. There's no difference. And it's not like God needs to know why he's here. God does know. It's also the cave that he encounters God in a way that resets his gaze, resets his focus. His gaze is no longer on his own mortality and fear of death, but rather on the eternal king and his plan for Elijah. Moses too had an encounter with God. This changed his gaze towards an eternal God and his plan for Moses. They both brought him to something that extends beyond the temporal world, beyond oxygen we breathe. They found security in an everlasting God, a God who sent his son to die for all mankind. They found something greater than their fear and insecurity. In Isaiah 53.10, we read that it pleased the Lord to let his son die for all humanity. In Matthew 13.44, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. From a fresh perspective, the cost is great, or fleshly, sorry, perspective, the cost is great. When we get saved, we give our lives to God. Our lives are no longer ours. In Colossians 3.3, 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So what did they buy into? What could possibly be so valuable that death itself would seem like a fair exchange? Let's look at Paul in Philippians 3, verse 4 to 7. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is the law, blameless. Those were the credentials of Paul. As a Jew of the day, he had everything going for him. So now let's take a look at how the encounter on the road to Damascus changed that point of view, that outlook in Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9. Yet indeed, I also count things, all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish that I might gain, might gain Christ. I just want to read the first verse, first piece again. 
Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And to be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith. So it seems the prize, the field of great price, the things that would make a person stand in the face of possible death like Moses and Elijah would be knowing God, but not just knowing him or knowing something about him, but knowing him intimately. What about the disciples? The disciples were normal people, busy with normal life, like us. One encounter with Jesus and they lay all down to follow him. What did they see? Are we called to give all? I believe so. So what are some of the things that hold us back? Fear of surrendering every area of ourselves, all of our wants in exchange for all he has for us. Not actively getting off the throne of our lives and letting God have his rightful place. Is it a process? Yes, definitely. It's a continual and persistent laying down of self a continual and persistent picking up of what God, what God has for us. It looks like putting God at the forefront of our thoughts and actions. It looks like surrender. But why? Why surrender? Why lay down self? Psalms 139 verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Jeremiah 29 verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I have that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you hope and a future. And 1 Peter 2 verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I believe we need to be found cultivating a culture of living in the Word of God and walking it out in the world. I believe that, pe that opening up the door of our hearts to Jesus and allowing His light to shine on every area to bring healing and change will not only change us, but will have an effect on those around us. Who wants a deeper encounter with God? I want to stress that this is going to cost you. It's going to cost you. It's going to look like laying down your hurts. It's going to look like laying down the lies of the enemy. It's going to look like choosing to believe what, get, what God says about you and that it's true. It's going to look like choosing to break down those self-made walls and letting God in. I'm right at the end of my, my thing. So I've just got two questions. Uh, left uh, so if we can just close our eyes my first question is if if you've never had an encounter with God if you've never encountered him and you want a life-changing encounter with him could I ask you to slip up your hand thank you My second question, 
if you have had an encounter with God, He's your Lord and Savior. But you desire more. You want a greater encounter with God. If you desire to walk closer to Him, and you desire for His outworking to be in your life, and I just want to stress again that this is not something that you need to feel pressured to do, like, oh, I'm going to do it because this is a, it's like, oh, this question encompasses everybody. If you don't feel it in your heart, don't do it. This is between you and God, comes at a cost. If you desire more of God and you desire a greater encounter, uh, an encounter with him, I can ask you to slip your hands up.